Many of you know our church is involved with a ministry called Friends of Internationals, and um, the ministry was started probably, I don't know, 12, 15 years ago by a guy named Mark Lidecker, who was actually a mentor of Jake's. Um, And Mark had this passion for seeing international students that came to USF for schooling get into the lives of Americans and churches, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it's, it's odd, but, I mean, if you kind of think about it, it makes sense. But most people, most international students will come to the U.S. for school and never step foot in an American's home. Come, they'll do their four years, they'll hang out with other international folks, and they get their degree, and they go back home, and they've been in the U.S. for four years, and that was the extent of it. And so his passion was, well, let's just get them around Bible-believing folks, let's love on them, let's share Jesus with them, and, you know, some of them will say, wow, that's, you know, I want, I want that relationship with Christ. And so that's kind of how it started out, and about three months into the ministry, um, he met this guy, or six months into the ministry, he met this guy named Silby, which we've talked about Silby before from up here, but Silby was one of the first students that became a part of the ministry and said, man, I, I, I need to do that. I want to be a part of Christ's family. I want to commit my life to Jesus. And so he was an engineering student at the time. He went on, got his degree, started working in, I guess, corporate America is what you'd call it. And, um, and then God started working on his heart and he said, man, I really got to go back to India. Like, that's where I'm from. That's where my family's from. A lot of my family doesn't know Jesus. And I just, I want to spend my time, the rest of the time I have on earth, just sharing the love of Christ with them. And so, uh, Sylvie and I had become pretty good friends. He was here. We had done some outreach together. And probably three months before he left, he came, came to me and said, hey, let's, um, let's get together and have coffee because I want to talk to you about a discipleship ministry that I'd like you to run. And I was like, okay, well, that's doable. You know, probably the international students he's been working with, he probably just wants to figure out a way to kind of keep that ministry going. Um, and so, as it turns out, he didn't want me to do that. He wanted me to disciple people in India, um, which obviously is a little more complicated. But, um, but what the goal was, he said, look, I'm one person. I go over there and I lead somebody to Christ and maybe they become a pastor. They have no seminary training. They, they have no background. He goes, I want you to figure out a way to minister to these folks and disciple them through Skype. You know, technology is really good these days. A lot of them know English because... Um, India used to be a British colony, so a lot of them speak English, at least broken English, so you know, you, we can do this. So there was a group of people that kind of committed to being a part of this, and once a week, you know, 7, 8 o'clock at night, it would be 12 hours ahead there, I would get a call on Skype, and I'd sit in my garage or wherever we were at the time, and I'd get this call, and we'd walk through like a survey of Old Testament, survey of New Testament. There's a room of who knows how many people on the other end. They have Skype. I don't know what it looked like on there, and I couldn't see it, but we would just start talking about Jesus, talking about the New Testament, talking about the Old Testament, um, and it was, I mean, it was pretty awesome, and one of the pastors that I met who I'd say you know, just became the closest with, his name was Raju. And as it turns out, as the Lord would have it, I'd actually end up going over to India a few years later and baptizing his daughter. So it was pretty cool to be a part of that. You know, the river was probably the most polluted river I'd ever seen in my whole life. And you're, you're walking in to baptize this young child and you're stepping over glass and there's cows. I mean, it was just pretty surreal when you're over there. But Raju, every, every night, not once a week, every night, in his house, which was also the church, 
at 5.30, they had a prayer service. And at first, it just started out with him and his family. People could come in and pray. So you just knew, he actually had a sign outside of his house that said, House of Prayer. And you would know that you could come there. So it was, at first it was just his family and then it kind of expanded into his church members and before long the neighborhood became interested in what was happening and then they realized that, wow, prayer works. Like prayer, there's actually something to prayer. You know, a lot of times for anybody, but especially for maybe Hindus, you know, some of their background, it's they're praying to millions of gods. And so to actually pray to the one true God and then to see things happen, to see lives change, to see people healed, to see diseases taken away was just pretty mind-blowing. And so every, you know, every night his house was packed for this prayer service. And, you know, as American, I don't really want to blame it on him, my Americanness, but maybe just as my weak faith, you know, it's like, I'm kind of skeptical about it. Okay, tell me about these healings. Like, what's actually happening? And he says, look, he probably didn't say it like that, but he was like, you know, he said, Shale, we're not healing people. Like, I'm not laying my hands on somebody like an old school kind of, you know, revival type of service. And he said, and I don't have power. He goes, the power is in prayer. And he goes, the prayer of these people, and they, and they know that. They know that I'm not the one healing. They know that I am just praying for these people and that God is doing something miraculous. And it was still hard for me to kind of wrap my head around, and probably is for some of you as well. But, I mean, it's the reality of the situation. I mean, we believe that prayer works, do we not? We believe that God can heal, do we not? But yet, when push comes to shove and we're pushed into action and we have to pray, a lot of times we're just like, oh, I don't know if this is actually going to work or not. Like, I don't know if God's actually going to... I mean, I'm not speaking for all of you. Just those of us who have less faith, that sometimes you just wonder if that's going to work. So, you know, that, that's kind of the, the mindset that I was in. And he calls me one night and he says... All right, I mean, just randomly, eating dinner, get a phone call or a text message, and he says, hey, I want you to preach a message in 30 minutes. I'm just like, what? He says, I'm going to call you. I'm in this village in northern India, and somebody needs to share Jesus with these people, and I want you to do it. You know, if you've ever known Sylvie, he can be pretty direct, and I was like, okay, so 30 minutes. You know, I'm like, okay, 30 minutes. And then, of course, three hours later, he calls, like, typical Indian time. But he calls me, and he says, okay, we're all gathered around. Um, I'm going to translate, start preaching. I was like, okay. So I just start preaching and, you know, go through this, this message. And I have no idea what's happening on the other end. This wasn't Skype. This was just literally a phone call. He has me on speakerphone and who knows where in the middle of this village. And then he picks up the phone after I'm done and he says, okay, I'm taking you over to the sick man. I'm putting the phone by his ear. Pray for him. And I was like, okay. So I just start praying and, you know, I prayed for this man. And then all of a sudden I'm done and he says, Okay, thanks. Hangs up, and that was the end. It was just, it was done. And I was like, wait, tell, tell me what happened. Did the guy get healed? Did people come to faith in Christ? Like, like explain this situation to me. And he, of course, I got nothing. And then I get a text from him the next day, and he says, this is what it says. It says, thank you, brother, for praying. The man is healed, walking around the village. The people are amazed, and many have trusted in Jesus. And here's the thing. I would love to tell you that as I was praying for this man, there was zero doubt in my mind that he was going to be healed. Like, I, I would love to tell you that my faith was strengthened and I just knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that when the words ended and I said amen, put the phone down, that he was going to be perfectly fine. But there, 
you know, part of me, you know, maybe it's weak faith or whatever it is, but part of me always is just like, I don't, I don't, I don't know if God's going to do this. I know God can heal. But there's this doubt that rests inside of me at times where I just maybe don't think he will or don't think, I, I don't know how to explain it. I can't put my finger on it. Um, you know, I would ask you the same question. What would, if you were in my shoes and you were praying that prayer and praying for this man to be healed, what would be going through your mind? Oh, no doubt. This guy who can't walk, who's on, on his deathbed, there's no question in my mind that when I'm done praying this prayer, he's going to get up and walk. Like, it's just, we live in this world where I know God's the great physician. I know he can heal. I know he's capable of healing. Um, I mean, is he not? Is he capable of healing? He is. And, you know, let me ask you this. When you were praying for Carrie, Carrie Anderson, who's our banjo player, who's an integral part of this faith family, got in a motorcycle accident. When you were praying for him, especially in the early days, how did those, did you think God would actually answer your prayer? Not did you not think he was capable of, but did you think he would? And, I, and that's just it's something I've, I have kind of gone back and forth with. There were days where I'm like, I know he's going to heal. I know there's no doubt. Then there were days where I'm just like, I don't know. And it's just, it's this human fallibility, if you will, that just kind of makes, at least for me, that just kind of wishy-washy. Um, we got a picture. I don't know if we have the picture or not, but Teresa gave us, let us show it. This was Carrie this morning. Now, two months ago, if you were praying for him, you understand what I'm talking about, how part of you just didn't know what the outcome of your prayers could be. Not that God couldn't do it, but he's hooked up to nothing right now. He's got IVs in, but he's hooked up to nothing. I mean, for all intent, I don't want to give you false hope, but from my conversations with Teresa this morning, she said, God, I mean, has done miracle after miracle after miracle in his life. And there's been healing after healing after healing. And everybody in the hospital and everybody in the family and everybody in this faith family know that it is nothing but the result of prayer. And nothing but the result of the faith that God can do something, that God can heal. And today we're going to, there will be plenty more time to talk about that. But today we're going to study two passages. We're going to wrap up the end of the book of John, or book of John, chapter 4 in John, and we're going to start John chapter 5. So we're going to do two stories. When I get done with the first one, don't think we're done and get all excited, all right? There's two stories. <laughs> two stories, all right? I was given the passage, so we're going to do two stories. Um, but we're going to see Jesus interact with these people, and he's going to demand a level of faith from them. It's weak at first. It's small at first. Maybe they don't understand what's happening at first, but he's going to demand a certain level of faith. And then in the end, we're going to see his mercy and his love as he points people to his father. So turn to John chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 46, and I'm going to read this whole first story. It says, So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus arrived in Galilee from Judea, he, sent, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, Come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. 
the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them to the hour, asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he, he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he came from Judea to Galilee. So our, our story takes us back to Cana where the passage says Jesus performed his first miracle in Galilee, and we're introduced to a royal official. Okay, royal official, probably in the service of King Herod. Um, And he's in a pretty scary situation. He said his son is sick, and he's close to death. I remember when we were, um, when Jaden was born, my son Jaden was born, he developed pneumonia. And one second, we're sitting at the hospital waiting for him to be released, and the very next second, I look over and he's in an incubator and they're rushing him. They said their intensive care unit wasn't good enough. They didn't say those words, but um, that it wasn't intense enough. And they were rushing him by ambulance to another hospital. And so one second, you're feeling, okay, everything's fine. This is, you know, everything's going to be great. And the next second, you're following an ambulance to another hospital because he's going into the NICU. And you have this feeling of helplessness, if you will. I mean, that's, that's the only way to describe it. There's, you know there's nothing you can do. And every time we'd visit them, you have to wash up. I don't know if you've ever been in a NICU, but every time you visit, you have to wash your hands for three minutes. I've never washed my hands for three minutes in my entire life. But literally, they had a timer. You'd walk in, you'd push the timer, and it would count down, and you would sit there, and Courtney would be looking over me, making sure I'm following the rules, you know, because I'd be trying to... If, if I tried to get in early, she'd be like, no, you're going to wash those hands. So we'd, we'd get in there, and after the first couple of days, you'd go in, and you can't do anything. you just sit there and look at him. He's in this little incubator, and you, there's, you just, there's absolutely nothing you can do, okay? And I want you to put yourselves in the shoes of this royal official and his family. Nothing you can do. He said his son was near death. You know they have tried everything. Every known remedy, every known doctor, every known healer, everything they possibly, I guarantee you they had extinguished all of the options of what they could do. And finally, he comes home one day and probably says, hey, talks to his wife and says, hey, I've heard of this guy in Galilee, and he's a healer. He can heal. I mean, we don't know the conversation, but he goes, he hears of Jesus, tells his wife, what do we have to lose? And he's off. Now, Capernaum to Cana is not long, maybe 15 miles so maybe the distance from, you know, Tampa-ish to Plant City would probably be, you know, it's, and you think, okay, that's fine. That's not a big deal. I-4, everybody's fine. You just walk down. You know, these are kind of old desert roads. The roads weren't good. This wouldn't have been the easiest walk in the world, 15 miles. Most of us haven't walked 15 miles in a long time. So, you know, it wouldn't have been the easiest thing for him. But he takes this journey, honestly, because he's desperate. He has faith, even maybe just a little bit of faith, that Jesus can heal his son. All right, so he gets close. Now, if you know anything about the time of Christ, you know Jesus, I mean, he was, everywhere he went, there were crowds. Everywhere he went, there were people all around. So, you know, you have to imagine this overwhelming amount of people he gets. He knows Jesus is there. He sees the crowds. And so he's kind of clawing his way through the crowds. I have to get to Jesus. I have to get to Jesus. I have to see what's going on. And he gets in there and, you know, sees him at a distance and walks up. And this is what the passage says, verse 47. It says, when this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him. It doesn't say he asked quietly. It doesn't say he tapped him on the shoulder just asked him a really nice question. It says he begged. He found Jesus and he begged. All right, and what, here, here's the thing before we go any further. This is such a beautiful picture here in the beginning of kind of the early stages, the beginning stages of faith. Because your faith, my faith, faith begins 
when we humble ourselves enough to realize that we have to go to Jesus for help. The beginning stages, the beginning stages of faith, your faith with Christ, your walk with Christ, always starts when you realize that you can't do it alone. When you realize that you need a savior, you need someone to help you, you need someone to do something that you can't do. And so this royal official makes that first step and it says, you know, if you think about it, you got the royal official on one hand, you got Jesus on the other hand, these two wouldn't normally cross paths. Very different. They wouldn't, they wouldn't, they're just in this life. You have a Jewish carpenter over here and that's the life that Jesus was living, a Jewish carpenter. You have a royal official. Their friend circles were very different. If his friends found out, I guarantee you if this royal official's friends found out that he had gone to Jesus to seek healing for his son, it would have raised some eyebrows. You're what? You're doing what? You're going to see who? Like, why would you do this? And, um, you know, I mean, that's just, that's the way it is sometimes. He doesn't care. Do you think he cares what his friends think? Do you think he cares what the high society thinks of what he's doing? You see, faith isn't concerned what others think. And that's, that's very important for you and for me to understand. Faith isn't concerned what other people think. It isn't concerned about the popular opinion. Faith follows Jesus no matter what. And that's, that's a really hard thing, I think, to grasp at times. Because if you think about your life, you think about my life. You know, sometimes my decisions, my faith, my belief, it, unfortunately, I tend to care what other people think. I'm not proud of that, but I, I tend to let that creep in at times. Well, what, what will this crowd think if I do this? You know, does your faith have conditions? Well, I'm going to trust Jesus for everything except my relationships. You know, I, I, I really need to be the one in charge of who I date or who I hang out with or what I do or who I marry. You know, I'm going to trust Jesus with everything, but that part's mine. I'm going to trust Jesus with that or I'm, I'm going to trust Jesus with everything except my business decisions. You know, Jesus walked the earth 2,000 years ago. Business was very different back then. This is the way business is done today. Jesus doesn't quite understand that. So I'm going to trust him with everything in my life except business decisions or with my money. I don't really trust him with my money. And so here's the thing. So many people like the idea of Jesus, but they want it on their terms. What we really want is we want to keep walking down the same path. We want to keep doing the same thing. And we want Jesus to tag along behind us. So if we get ourselves into a pickle, we can turn around and be like, okay, I need you. I need you to help me out here. Now, granted, we've, we've walked down this complete other path, but we want to keep walking the way we're walking and we want Jesus to tag along until we need him. And Jesus said, basically, that's not how he operates. He looks at the crowd in verse 48 and he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. He knows what they're after. A lot of them are following him because he's doing miracles. Because he's doing signs. They're not after a deeper relationship. They're not trying to understand the forgiveness of sin. They're not trying to understand the other components of what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. They want to see signs. They want to see wonders. They want to be fed. They want, you know, the feeding the 5,000. I mean, they're, they're, they're intrigued. You're going to see at the end of John chapter 6, it says a lot of the crowds left them. They went their own way. Okay, we've seen enough. We get it. But the royal official, this guy, he's a little different. And that's where the faith comes in, right? His direction has changed. He's come a long way to find Jesus. His belief has changed, just a little. His hope has changed. 
and he placed it squarely on Jesus, right? He wasn't there out of convenience. He knew deep down that Jesus was the only answer. And Alistair Begg has a quote, and he says, he says, genuine faith requires us to come to Jesus and ask him to do what we can't do for ourselves. Genuine faith requires us to come to Jesus and ask him to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. So the official looks at Jesus once again after he said, you guys are just after these signs and these wonders. Verse 49, it says, the official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And I love the fact that this guy's persistent. All right, he's not gonna, Jesus says, you're only after signs, you're only after wonders. And he looks at Jesus and says, come down, my son is dying. He's persistent. He's persevering. All right, Jesus responds to persistent, persevering faith. Don't hesitate to continue to ask, to continue to ask, to continue to ask. You think one prayer was offered for Carrie and everybody stopped? All right, did that. We're good. There was prayer after prayer after prayer after prayer after prayer made on behalf of Carrie, and God responds. We have an amazing situation that turned out great this time. I'm not saying they always turn out that way. But this is an amazing situation that turned out wonderful. All right? And that's what Jesus responds to. Persistent, persevering faith. Um, There's a story in Luke chapter 18 about Jesus going down to heal a blind man. And he says in verse 35, I'm in Luke 18, 35. It says, As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And verse 38 says, And he cried out, Jesus... Son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in the front rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And verse 42 says, And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. And then what does he say? Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. That phrase, when I was reading those passages, stood out. It says, Jesus, have mercy on me. And that's such a, it's such a beautiful picture of how we come to Jesus. When your relationship with Jesus starts, it's like, Lord, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. Show me grace, even though I don't deserve it. Even though there's nothing I have done to deserve your grace, show me grace. Now, if you look at the story, the guy, the royal official, he still didn't quite get it because here he has an idea in his head of what needs to be done in order for his son to be healed. He wants Jesus to come with him. He says, Jesus, come down with me. All right, let's make this 15-mile 15, 15 journey together. Let's go back down to where I'm from in Capernaum. I know you're in Cana, but you need to come with me. Because clearly the only way Jesus can heal is if he comes to his house, if he holds his son, if he touches his forehead, if he prays over him. Just, I don't know what you do, but do whatever it is you do. Let's go back to Capernaum and let's heal. You know, basically come make him well. He traveled a long way. And if you've ever had to go, you know, if you're ever going to present something to someone or have a conversation with somebody that you, you know, you knew might, you might not get the response you want. The whole time you're walking or driving to that conversation, what are you doing? You're playing it through in your head. Okay, when they say this, 
I'm going to say this. You know, I, I guarantee you this guy has played his conversation with Jesus a hundred times in his head. Okay, when Jesus says he can't do it because of this, I'm going to tell him he has to do it because of this. And no matter how many scenarios he runs and how many times he replays what he's going to say to Jesus in his head, I promise you every single one of those results has to do with Jesus coming back with him to Capernaum and healing his son. And in verse 50, Jesus looks at him and simply says this, go, your son will live. That's the extent of it. You know, this man's entire life for the past however many months or years, however long his son's been sick, and this whole moment has led up to this moment right here where he looks at Jesus and he says, come with me, my son is sick, you have to come with me. And Jesus looks at him and says a few words, go, your son will live. That's all he says, all right? And if I were him, I would have been like, well, wait, 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 what do I got to do? It can't be this easy. There's got to be something else that needs to be done. You know, surely there's something you need to, something I need to do for you to show mercy on my son. Surely there's something I need to personally do in order for you to show us mercy. And he says, no, go, your son will live. And he has a decision to make in that moment. Does he go? Or does he keep pleading? Does he believe the words of Jesus? Or does he argue with him and say, no, 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 I need a little more. What do you do? If you're in a situation, you've come all that way, think of all the things that are going through your head, all the moment, the buildup, trying to find where Jesus is, finding him in this town of Cana, walking over, the crowds are huge. You know, you've been to these places where you're trying to go through crowds and Bucks games and subways, and you're trying to get to wherever Jesus is. He finally gets to him, and he pleads with them, begs with them to please come to where my son is, and Jesus just looks over, go, your son will live. That's, that takes faith to believe that the words that came out of Jesus' mouth are exactly what are going to happen. Especially after everything he'd just been through. And so it says, verse 50, the last half of verse 50, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. So he goes off on this long journey. I'm sure he's kind of replaying the conversation again. Okay, what am I going to tell my wife? You know, I don't, what if the kid's not healed? I mean, I, I don't know what's going through his mind, but verse 51, it says, as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to feel better to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to to Galilee. So in the beginning, his faith was small. Just a, a chance, a speck of hope that this person could heal his son. And if you know anything about faith, that's so often how it starts. Starts with this little understanding, this recognition that Jesus is the way, this recognition that he is the only one that can provide hope. He is the only one that can provide healing. And it starts little, tiny. And as life goes on, it grows, doesn't it? As life goes on and prayers are had. And I mean, if you're part of this church family, your life will be ever changed by the power of prayer and the power of healing by what you've witnessed in the Smith family and the Anderson family. Am I right? Forever changed. And that's what happens. God builds on your faith and things happen and prayers are answered and you trust him more and you read his word more and it just grows and it grows and it grows and it grows, but it starts somewhere. There's a situation in your life where your faith starts. And the important thing for you to understand before we go to the next story is that if you've never had that situation where you realize you're in need of help, you're in need of a savior, and the only person that can do that is Christ, then maybe faith hasn't started in your life. It hasn't taken root in your life. And I would encourage you to let today be that day. And we're going to talk more about that in a little bit. Warren Wearsby said, for this guy, his faith grew from a crisis faith 
to a confident faith, to a confirmed faith, and finally he shared it with his family and it became a contagious faith. That's what Warren Wearsby says. So let's keep reading. John chapter 5, next story. I promised you there were two stories. So 5.1, after this there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five Ruth colonnades. And these lay multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. So there's this scene, picture the scene, there's this pool near the sheep gate, and it says that there were invalids and the lame and the paralyzed and disabled that would lay there, and one person had been an invalid for 38 years. You can read that and just pass right over it, but that is a long time. Life expectancy in those days was not what it is today, and 38 years is a long time. Now, I love history. And as I study a passage, for me, it's insanely helpful just to get a background of the passage to understand, you know, if there's anything, any archaeological facts, archaeological facts that I I find interesting that just kind of help me get a picture of what's happening. So for those of you who don't like history, you can zone out for the next three minutes. I'll pull you back in when we're done. But for those of you who like history, um, I'm going to just run through some cool little aspects of this particular scene. So for the longest time, secular historians thought that, you know, that there was no pool. They couldn't find a pool near the sheep gate. They just kind of wrote it off. Maybe, you know, no geological evidence to back it up or archaeological evidence to back it up. So they just kind of wrote it off. John kind of took a few stories, combined them together, kind of made something up. And, you know, that's, we have a little exaggeration here. But in the late 1800s, archaeologists found an ancient, a large ancient pool near St. Anne's Church, which is just north of the Temple Mount. The pool was divided into two parts and had four tall roofed porticos. Now the pools themselves were almost 42 feet deep, which if you think about, I mean, that's, that's deep. Especially you have people who are paralyzed that are trying to make it to the pool. And I mean, it's just, you can, you can picture, you know, something that could happen there. And it says, um, archaeologists said it was probably, they were probably constructed 200 BC, which would be about 200 years or so before when we're talking about now. And they were used for washing the sheep near Nehemiah's sheep gate. They would be used for washing the sheep as they were brought in for temple sacrifice. Um, the place was called Bethesda, Bethesda, sorry, which means house of mercy. That's if you put those two words together, it means house of mercy. Now, if that's not interesting enough for all you who are interested, um, a few years later, they you know, were continuing to dig and they found a 5th century Byzantine church built in the vicinity of the pools. And inside the church, they found an altar, which was built on one of the levels. So, you know, as you, as you know how these digs go, since all of you know all about this, um, if you know how these digs go, you know, a lot of times civilizations are built on top of each other. They come in and, you know, just forget that area they'll build or they'll, you know, attach something new and they'll bury a different part that they don't need anymore. And, you know, as they dig down, they just kind of find these levels. And so what they found inside the church is they found an altar that was built on one of the levels below the pool. And around that altar, they found like four additional levels. And in one of those levels, they found a shrine. Um, And the shrine wasn't Jewish, wasn't Christian, but it was pagan in its background. Um, And they know this because they found inside the shrine, they found a statue of the ancient, there's an ancient healing god called Ishmud, and they found a, they actually found a human head with the body of a snake. They found this sculpture statue inside the shrine. So they, you know, they said, look, this is kind of a pagan, this was a pagan healing shrine. And then around the walls of the shrine, they found steps that would lead down into a part of the pool. 
So, you know, you understand as you read the story, the man couldn't make it down. You know, you're thinking if this is like a, a flat area and a beach or something like that, it'd be easy just to kind of get yourself to the pool. But if you're in caves and ravines and all these weird areas and four deep steps going down in the pool, you can understand maybe why it was a little tougher. Um, so you're like, okay, great, great story. Who cares, right? Um, here's why I think this is important. You know, yeah, some of it's kind of scholarly speculation, Do we know if this is exactly how it went down? No. But here's why I think this is really neat. Jesus is walking into Jerusalem for a feast. And where does he go? You know, this is a very mixed religious area. Believe it or not, I mean, the Romans are there. There's a lot of Greek influence. There's Roman guards all around. There's probably all kinds of different, you know, places of worship, at least outside the city and different things. A lot of different types of people inside. And Jesus walks into, or could have walked into this pagan shrine with these pools called Bethesda. And they, on, on one of the walls inside, when you look at this, you actually look at the, um, the waters, and they said the angel would come down and stir. On the walls of one of the shrines, they found a painting, an old painting. And it was a painting of an angel that was reaching down and touching the waters. And so when, when you read the story, you know, you kind of put two and two together. Okay, they're, they're thinking this angel is representing somebody who's going to come down and touch the waters, and the waters will stir, and the first one who makes it into the pool is going to be healed. And, you know, I mean, this is, it makes a lot of sense. But Jesus is not just, he's not just healing a random paralytic. Okay, it's important for you to understand that. Everything Jesus does is for a reason. He's not just randomly healing a paralytic. It's, it, yes, that's true, but he's not just helping a man to walk again. This is an assault on the demons of the world. You know, this is a picture of heaven against hell. And, and every healing, everything Jesus does, that's what's happening. Sometimes we just read it, oh, he helped a blind man see, he helped this see, he helped this, did this. Oh, he helped the lady, you know, he cast out demons. If you step back and think about it, everything Jesus is doing is an assault against hell. It's an assault against the pain in this world. It's an assault against the sin in this world. He's not letting people die. He's raising people from the dead. I mean, that's what Jesus is doing. So he walks into Jerusalem and he comes over and he walks into this shrine inside Jerusalem, comes down and this man is in this pagan temple and he's walking into the face of Satan and saying, I'm the only one with the power to heal. I'm the only one who's in control of life and death. I'm the only one that's in control of sickness and health. He doesn't need an angel to stir the water. He doesn't need to go to the man and say, okay, I'm going to stand right here until the water moves again, and then I'm going to carry you to the water. Because that's really what the man's after. He's after someone to carry him to the pool so when this angel stirs the water, he can be healed. Jesus doesn't need that. He is the one that offers true healing, and he is the only one that offers true healing, both physically and spiritually. And that's such an important thing to understand. So Jesus walks in, and he looks around, verse 6, it says, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew they had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. So if Step back and think about this situation kind of from the human perspective. This is a sad situation. Humanly speaking, this scene that's unfolding, this is a sad situation. He's in a shrine of sorts, a temple. There's lame, paralytic, destitute all around him. And their entire life consists of a ripple in the water. Consumed with this ripple 
in the water. An obsession with this idea that an angel will swoop down, touch the water, and they'll be healed. They even have a picture of the angel on the wall. Because they know that that is their only, that is their saving grace. And maybe a rock falls some odd reason. Maybe a spring comes up and ripples the water. And, you know, maybe there's minerals in the water. Maybe there's salt. I mean, you, you never know what, you know, maybe the first one in the water did get some kind of, you know, help from the, the water, the springs. I mean, there's, there's maybe some truth behind that. But it says, you know, maybe a rock falls in the water. Um, and then chaos you know, picture when a rock falls in or the water stirs. Picture the scene. What do you think happens? What do you think happens when the water ripples? Every man for himself. Every man for himself. I mean, you ever seen, you know, ever been to a Bucks game when the game's over? You ever, you know, you've been, I've been to New York City, you're trying to get on a subway at rush hour and you're just like, you know, you're just kind of like blocking everybody out. You're trying to put, you're pushing people on it. I mean, this, this is nothing like that, all right? We're talking a massive room filled with hurting people that their life depends on whether or not they make it to the water. There is a mad, clawing, fighting, pushing, pulling. There's no like stepping aside and being like, well, you've been here longer than me. Um, you know, go ahead. Go to the water. I promise you that's not happening. Like it's in full out, all out assault to get to the water. And then imagine the heartbreak if somebody gets to the water before you. What goes through your mind if you don't make it to the water? Hopelessness, despair, must have been overwhelming. So this man who's been lame for 38 years looks at Jesus and said, if you only knew. Do you want to be healed? And he's like, if you only knew everything running through his mind, all the times he thought he was going to be healed and he wasn't. And Jesus in verse 7, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water stirred and while I'm going another steps down before me. I would love to be healed, but I have no one to help me. The most honest truest words ever spoken. I would love to be healed, but I have no one to help me. Such, I mean, it's such a profound statement. And this guy, and the sad part is this guy is obsessed with what he believes to be the answer in his life. He's obsessed with something he believes to be the solution to his pain. And he can't quite grasp it. It's within reach and he can't quite, he wakes up every morning probably to the sounds of hurting people, wailing people, you know, that just the area and the shrine, this temple, I can only imagine. He's starving for healing, starving for peace, starving for joy. And yet, if you think about it, are we really any different? Is our society really any different? I want to over-spiritualize our society or over-spiritualize this story, but think about it. Are we really any different? You know, his situation is extremely sad from a physical standpoint of seeking physical healing. But think about it spiritually. You may not be sitting next to someone who's trying to get into a pool and asking someone to carry him into a pool, but we sit next to people, and maybe you're one of those people all day long who are searching for healing in random ways. Some are going after money. Some are going after fame. Some are going after popularity. We fall into those categories at times. doesn't mean we're perfect. But I would hope that our hope is somewhere else. And yet we pass people all day long who in their minds, there's one thing that's going to make them happy. There's one thing that's going to provide them hope. There's one thing that's going to provide them spiritual peace. You know, we sit among the lame, the destitute. We walk with the spiritually blind. 
We work next to them. We live next to them. And they may not realize it, but spiritually, we may not realize it. Our condition, your condition, is the exact same as this man. We are in need of someone to help us to eternal life. We're in need of someone to help us. Romans 5 says, says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. Verse 8, But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I love the beginning of that. While we were still helpless, and at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus looks at you and looks at me and says, just like to the the royal official, he says, do you have faith? Do you want to get well? One of the most important questions you'll ever ask yourself. Do you want to get well? Verse 8, he says, Jesus said, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and took up his bed and walked. This man probably hadn't walked in years, 38 years, but who knows how, you know, what his life was like before that. Jesus looks at him and says, get up and walk. And he's probably thinking, there's no way I can walk. I've tried to walk every single day for the last 38 years, and it fails me every time. And all of a sudden, Jesus walks in and says, get up and walk. And he's probably like, man, I just, I don't, I can't fathom, my legs haven't worked in 38 years. Like, I can't fathom my life any other way. But verse 9 says, at once the man was healed, took up his bed, and walked. Do you think that takes faith? I think it takes faith to pick up your bed and walk when you haven't walked in 38 years? And he does. With a word, Jesus heals. With a word, he saves. And in an instant, this man's life has changed forever. Do you believe God can do that? Don't just say yes. Do you, do you truly believe that God can change lives? That God can heal? Do you believe he can heal the alcoholic? Do you think he can heal the person who's in prison in pornography or lust or the pedophile? Or Do you think he is capable of healing? And not just physically, but do you believe he's capable of healing spiritually? And have you gone to him for spiritual healing? Have you approached him and said, Lord, I just have a little bit of faith, but I believe you're the only way. Like he tells the the man in other parts of the Gospels, he says, help my unbelief. I believe, but help my unbelief. Jesus looks at you today, he looks at me today, and he says, let's go. I've paid for your sins with my death on the cross. John 5.14, it says, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. This is the crippled man. He says, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed, healed him. Now, commentators kind of go back and forth on this. Why did he tell him to sin no more? Obviously, he's going to sin, and like it's, it's a little weird. You know, why would he tell him that? Some speculate that maybe his handicap, you know, the fact that he was handicapped was a result of a specific sin. But it's all just speculation. You know, personally, I think Jesus was reminding him of the fact that you've been physically healed, but you need to be spiritually healed. I mean, it's great to be physically healed. Would you agree? I mean, it's, if, you're, if you have something going on in your life, if you have a medical condition, if, if you're hurting in some way, it is great to be physically healed. But it pales in comparison to spiritual 
healing. It pales in compare. You're buying yourself. This man, 38, who knows how old he was, probably bought himself 20 years. I don't know, I don't know when he died. Jesus is more concerned with eternity. Jesus is more concerned with the rest of this man's life. He says, go and sin no more. All right, if you're, if you're sitting here today, you've never taken that first step of faith towards Jesus. I would encourage you to do it today. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, because if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. And if you're a follower of Christ today, rejoice in the fact that he has power over Satan. Rejoice in the fact that he can walk into a shrine, into a temple and say, I am the only one that heals. I am the only one who can heal. The pebble dropping into the water and stirring the waters, it's got nothing on me. Rejoice in the fact that you can draw near to him and you can pour out your prayers to him and that he answers prayer. And have faith that he can do that. Romans 4 says, or excuse me, Hebrews 4 verse 16 says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Why? That we may receive mercy. Have mercy on me and find grace to help in a time of need. I love that it says draw near. And then it says, you know, why do we draw near? To receive mercy and to find grace to help in a time of need. Um, Courtney and I love going to New York City. I know some of you are like, what? Um, Some of you probably hate New York City, but um, we love going to New York City. Probably because I grew up in Polk County and it's kind of like the opposite end of the spectrum. You got Polk County over here, you got New York City over here. Um, But one of the things I love to do is to go into Central Park. You know, it's just, I don't know if you've ever been there, but you go in and we usually enter in kind of by the Plaza Hotel, which has got that little bridge down there, a little footbridge. And so we go in and, you know, it's just like, okay, all the horns are behind you, the sounds are behind you. You know, Jake loves all the horns and the sounds and like the, I'm not, you know, I can do that for a little while, but I need to jump into the park for some some unwinding. Um, so, but I love to walk in, and one of the things I love to do is you walk in down by that bridge, and we, you know, we take the same picture we've taken every year for the last whatever years. You know, I don't know what I think I'm going to do with a new one, but we take another picture in front of the bridge. Then we'll walk over by the, the skating rink there, walk up to the you know, Great Lawn, and then you'll walk over, and then they have all these trees. And this one part is called the mall, and you have all these trees that are up above in this long sidewalk. You see a lot of movies filmed there with just these huge, majestic trees. And as you're walking down that path and you get to the very end there's some steps that go down there's like a terrace there got some artwork on the sides angels and stuff on the side you've probably never paid attention but as you walk through that terrace and you look at that artwork it's very fitting for what we talked about today because if you look straight ahead you see a fountain and the name of that fountain is called Bethesda fountain and if you look in the middle of that fountain there's an angel You guys seen this fountain before? There's an angel, and that angel is actually touching the water and stirring the water to bring clean water to New York City. And the story behind it is, in the 1800s, people were dying all over New York from contamination. Cholera, and I mean, you just had contaminants, and there was no clean water in the city. So New York's done quite a few water-building projects over the years, but the first one started in the mid-1800s. And what they did around 1842 is they started this aqueduct, which would go all the way out, probably 60 miles outside of the city, to this river, like kind of like the first real river they could get clean water from. And so they started this building project, took them about six years, 
And then the water all of a sudden started flowing into New York City. And one of the places, the first places it stopped was Central Park. And so a few years later, in about 1873, they decided to build a fountain. And the fountain, the whole purpose of the fountain was to show, but literally was from John chapter 5. If you go into the history of this fountain, it says John chapter 5. And the whole purpose was to remind people that this water was coming into the city. And one of the first places it would go is through this, to this angel. The angel would supposedly touch it and kind of make it pure. And the idea was it was bringing health to the city. For the first time, it was bringing pure water to the city. And it was just a reminder to the people, man, this water is, this water is good. This water is clean. It's going to bring you life. Okay, and you know, you fast forward 150 years, people milling about, looking about, taking selfies in front of the fountain. No, nobody remembers that. These people are long gone. The people who built that fountain, built that statue, they're no longer here. And New York City doesn't really worry as much about clean water anymore. They got supposedly some of the best water in the country. Um, but here's the thing. That water, like with the woman at the well, as good as that water is, and as much life as that water brings at the time, it's temporary. It's temporary. Sure, it bought them another 20 years, 30 years, 40 years on this earth, but it doesn't do anything for eternity. Don't, don't ever forget that as we read through these stories in John, you read what Jesus is doing and the miracles that he's doing, it's to point people to eternity. You know, some of you might be here today and you're like, I don't know if I've ever placed my faith in Jesus. I don't know if I've ever made that first step. You're here for a reason. Your friend who brought you here, the fact that you came here, it's not by accident. God is pursuing you and it's because he wants a relationship with you. All right? I love you guys. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these two stories in John chapter 4 and John chapter 5 and just the, the truth that's found in them, Lord, and what a great picture they are for the fact that you are the great physician. You are the healer, Lord, that we have, we have faith in who you are. We have faith that you are a healer, Lord, and even at times when it doesn't feel like, we, doesn't feel like you will, Lord, or it doesn't feel like your ways are best, that we know that you're in control. And that's what's important. Lord, we love you. Lord, we thank you for everything you do for us. In your name, amen.